This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration exceeded the record of two of its predecessors in at least one respect, namely the number and estimated costs of the regulations issued in the first year. That's according to a tally made by my next guest. He's a senior regulatory policy analyst at the right-leaning American Action Forum, Dan Goldbeck. Mr. Goldbeck, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. So tell us what you have discovered in counting regulations issued. I guess you can look at them in terms of pages, in terms of the manpower required by industry to carry them out, and in what they'll cost. So tell us what you found. Sure. So over here at American Action Forum, we have this project called Reg Rodeo, where we track all the regulations that come through the Federal Register with data going back to 2005. Now, with the Biden administration passing its first year or so, we're able to compare it to at least the Trump administration, the Obama administration, in terms of what were they doing in their first year. And what we found, particularly in terms of the costs that the agencies themselves estimate, the Biden administration is far exceeding its two predecessors in terms of regulatory costs, as well as also paperwork that's imposed by these regulations. And what are the regulatory costs so far? So an updated version of it has the Biden administration with about $200 billion in regulatory costs and about 131 million hours of paperwork each year. As opposed to Trump, the total was about $5 billion in costs and 8 million hours. And for Obama, it was about $65 million in costs and $50 million hours. And so you're seeing a just massive increase compared to the past two administrations. Part of that is because of a couple pretty major rules, but you're seeing a pretty continuous trend line in that direction. And a major rule threshold, I believe, is $10 billion? Uh, It's $100 million. $100 million. Okay. Well, I was way ahead of that. (laughs) And so what are the couple biggest ones that contribute the most to this $200 billion figure? So perhaps the most significant one was the Biden administration's version of vehicle emission standards that hit late last year. That contributed the vast majority of the cost to this total. Another significant rule was the OSHA vaccine mandate that's actually since been stayed by the Supreme Court, but it imposed the largest amount of paperwork by about 80 million hours there. Wow. So even in having it rescinded by the Supreme Court, a lot of the cat is out of the bag for industries that tried to comply because they couldn't wait for the Supreme Court. Up until this point with the Supreme Court, say, this is just based upon the agency's own analysis of what it would potentially impose. I'm not sure exactly how much got implemented in that sense, but that's what the agency said it was going to impose. So, Right, because in making a regulation, they have to state the estimated cost in terms of industry paperwork burden and cost also, and dollars yes. expended. Now, this $200 billion and $130 million hours in the first year, I guess it's possible then, theoretically, that they could be very light on regulations for the next three years. And we do know what Obama did in the first four years there and what Trump did in those four years. So there's a chance this could all kind of average out? There is a possibility for that in terms of checking from even just my year one report from last month checking the Obama administration total, the paperwork there has kind of been creeping up and catching it. And particularly if you take out that one OSHA rule, they're getting closer to parity there. But I think you're going to see still a continued increase as much as the administration can, because as we've seen in these past couple of administrations, when they can't get their major items through Congress, regardless of which direction they're going in terms of the policy, 
then they turn to these executive actions and regulations to try to implement their policies as much as they can. And I think that just given the trends politically in this country, you're going to see the Biden administration go down that route more and more. We're speaking with Dan Goldbeck. He's senior regulatory policy analyst at the right-leaning American Action Forum. And when the different agencies propose these regulations, there's a process for rulemaking that they have to do. Do you have any sense of the imposition of time and effort on the agencies proposing the rules? Because these take a lot of effort. Yeah. I mean, the basic process is an agency proposes a rule and then they have a limited period of time where they fight public comment. And then they go over those comments. They're legally required to consider them all. And some of those rules can get hundreds of thousands of comments. And so that obviously is a pretty big imposition on the agencies to review all those comments or at least get a sense of what direction they're pushing towards and incorporating those contributions into the final version that usually comes, you know, a few months down the line. And let's switch to executive orders for a minute because you've tallied those up too. And we remember some of the television images of these big stacks of beautiful binders and nice pens, the president looking dapper, signed with a lot of fanfare. What's the numbers there? It looks like there's a history of large numbers of EOs going back quite a few years. For that area, we actually have a lot more data going farther back in history. And what we find is that in its first year, President Biden has signed more EOs than at least going back to the Ford administration. So that's going on 50 years or so of precedent. And so you're just seeing in that sense, the actual regulations can be very granular. The executive orders, though, are the broad source statements of policy, as you sort of speak to in terms of having the pomp and circumstance to them. And so to the extent that you're seeing this increased volume, it again points to this continuing trend towards executive action versus legislation because Congress is so intractable at the moment. Right. And it looks like the leader of executive orders in the first year was Dwight D. Eisenhower, which would have Mm -hmm. been back in 1953. And in general, the first number of orders undo the orders of the prior administration, presuming the party changes. Increasingly now, because you saw a decent amount from Trump in his first year, too. And so a lot of that is orders from Biden reversing those. And also, as we know in the report, a number of them, of course, were dealing primarily with the whole COVID situation. And so there is a little bit of historical anomalies, but still, I think it's a notable trend. But if you look at George H.W. Bush, that was the real piker there. He only came in with about 35 in the first year. Clinton and George W. Bush were about matched, you know, a few Mm -hmm. plus or minus. But then you really get this yo-yo effect between Obama to Trump to Biden. I get the sense that could continue if the party changes again. The yo-yo effect, as you put it, is a really apt description for how the whole administrative process goes these days in terms of these administrations basically putting all their chips into executive actions that, unlike legislation, are that much more ephemeral in terms of a new party comes into power and they can just swipe away so much of the previous party's agenda in that sense. And probably industry just wishes for stability, even if there are lots of regulations, if they could count on some kind of normalcy continuing from administration to administration. That's probably what they want more than necessarily a reduction of regulation per se. Yeah, you hear a lot from industry folks that having this sort of up and down thing really messes with them trying to plan out five, 10 years ahead in terms of their business plan. And so it's certainly important consideration.
All right. Dan Goldbeck is Senior Regulatory Policy Analyst at the Right of Center American Action Forum. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.